Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I'm your host, Josiah. And I'm your co-host, Byron. Byron, you know what we get to say sorry for this time? Um, well, I don't know if I... I have an idea, but it wouldn't be genuine coming from me. <laughs> and it was something, well, that's something, not, it? not something I said, but it's something that our last <laughs> oh. guest said about... Oh, well, you know what? Let's leave that as a clip. building, but... <laughs> I'm not going to leave that as a cliffhanger. Let's let's leave that as a cliffhanger. <laughs> people need to go and listen to that episode to decide if that's something worth apologizing well, for. Well, some people will be offended by that. I I don't think of the majority of our listeners would be. I'm sure, I know for a fact a couple of them probably would be not necessarily offended, but like not love it. But well, the thing we actually got feedback for is that we said sorry too much in the last episode. I don't know if you got that feedback or not, but we someone was like, man, and that was really terrible because they used the stereotypes like, what are you, Canadian? You said sorry like 15 times. I'm like, oh my goodness, well, was that's that terrible. From, I can't remember what episode that was about, though. Was it this... I don't remember what we I were saying was sorry about. The one if it was at the talk... beginning. I think it was I the before last, now. No, I think it was actually the one with Zach Hunt. and huh. th- that They specifically said, you apologize too much in the Zach Hunt podcast, so Regardless, I guess we're sorry for saying sorry. We're so sorry. Much. We're I, whatever. We're, sorry. we're supposedly sorry. Um, <laughs> but before we get this, before we get this episode started and have ourselves, you know, afford ourselves another opportunity to apologize for saying something dumb, uh, we would like to just give a, a brief update. We're not doing our sponsor at the beginning of this episode. We'll do it later on. Uh, but I just wanted to give a brief update. We're wrapping up the season, and there's a reason for that. Uh, it's it's a little bit to do with my personal situation. Me and Byron are trying to crank out a bunch of recordings because in not too long a time, my wife will be having a scheduled C-section unless she has to go into the hospital sooner than later. Having some complications with this pregnancy, uh, it's our fourth kid, and she actually can't even lift our youngest child. So I'm basically hanging out with my one-and-a-half-year-old all the time, and he basically lets me know without specifically saying this, but he articulates on a regular basis how I am not a worthy substitute for his mother like on a regular basis he reminds me yeah you're not mom i don't actually want to be with you and it's like an ongoing joke with my older kids fair, we watch... yeah it's true but that not the mama you remember that growing up watching dinosaurs or whatever that show was called <laughs> not the mama yeah, yeah that's, that's what it feels like show. oh my gosh yeah i never thought i would empathize with the dad in that show anyways <laughs> uh just for our listeners um just, just for the, the sake of the knowing, we're wrapping the season up. There's some reasons for it. We have a couple more episodes we're trying to record all in one week's time, and then we're going to release them every week. So we might have a couple more episodes after this, but just fair warning. Uh, who knows what's going to happen? Your prayers would be appreciated. But let's get to the show. On today's episode, if this is your first time listening, then spoiler alert, we have other millennials join a couple millennials to talk about millennially things. And on the show today, we have yet, well, I guess we'll see potentially another millennial and his name is evan evan are you with us i am i am here well thank evan. you for joining us thanks it. pal my pleasure so i'm gonna ask evan to share a little bit about himself but i also want to before he gets too in depth about his life story to to throw out this is our this is the last member in in the cohort that we're gonna get in this season i think this is everyone that's been in my cohort right evan did i i don't I think you're the last person in the in the cohort that's currently participating. 
Yeah, I think you told me that I was the last one. You're saving the best for last here, I think. I'm saving the best for last. I'm saving the, Evan is the best for last. And if you haven't heard, the cohort that me and Evan are a part of is this really awesome initiative our denomination has put together to get young clergy together to be mentored, to be affirmed, to be trained, but also just to like get to know each other. I honestly did not have that many millennial pastor friends before this cohort. And now I feel like, oh my goodness, I have so many friends that understand what I'm going through. It's been very life-giving. So it has afforded me the opportunity to get to know guys like Evan. So Evan, since I already know you, I mean, I'm going to ask you these questions. I already know the answers to it. But would you tell our audience, would you, and Byron doesn't know you as well as I do, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're at, how old you are, what you're doing, and where where you're doing what you're doing? You got it. Um, yeah, my name's Evan. I'm in uh, Tavares, Florida. It's about 30 miles outside of Orlando. Um, 35 years old. Um, married to my awesome wife, Heather. We have four boys. Um ages nine, eight, uh, I got to remember six and four. Um, oh, so, uh, my house is busy, uh, to say the least. Uh, I'm serving as the lead pastor at the Tiberius church, of the Nazarene, um, been here for about two and a half years. Uh, before that I was in Pennsylvania, uh, serving in music ministry and youth ministry, uh, for about seven years before that. So, um, Pennsylvania to Florida, is that a pretty big culture shift? Um, gigantic. Uh, <laughs> man, I, was, I was out in the middle of Amish country. Like, oh, I mean, that's interesting. Man, when I, when I interviewed at this church, I had people telling me that, you know, I'm coming to a small town in central Florida. And I'm like, this is the less thing from small. Like, I literally had Amish people as my next door neighbors. That's, <laughs> that's small town, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was huge. Florida is just like a different world. It's not like the southeast. Um, like if, if you were in Alabama, it's where I'm at. Central Florida is nothing like that. So um, a big change from Pennsylvania to Florida. Yeah, you have four kids, which I find interesting because we've had a couple other podcasters or podcast guests from the cohort. And it seems like if you have kids, you're going to have four. Is that just is that just a thing or what? Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I kind of hope it stays at four. Um, <laughs> are you are you uh, are you fearful of something happening, man? Well, I mean, you know, my my youngest son, his name is Micah. He's been telling me the last like three weeks that he really wants a sister. And so I, I'm like, dude, this is not going to happen. He's like, <laughs> he's like. He told me, he said, no, you, we need to have a girl. And I'm like, I'm like, no, this is a four-year-old, you know? I'm like, no, I'm, I, I, dude, I'm sorry. We're not having any more kids. And Dunzo. so I, I'm hoping he's not being prophetic in some form or fashion. Oh, my this. goodness. Well, I jokingly uh, try to be prophetic for Byron because Byron is married and without children. So, so I have jokingly. Okay, but again, I've been married for a year and a half. I know, that's true. But I've jokingly kids. said that. All of our listeners could feel free to join us in praying that Byron and his wife would be with and that's child because soon. Because you're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> well, Evan, I don't know. Four Kid Club. I'm about to join that club. We'll see how it goes. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna have some fun with your age. So your tech. What year were you born? I guess I should ask that. I was born in in June of 1983. Okay, so just for the record, according to Pew Research, you are technically a millennial. They define it by by birth year, and they would say that if you're born between 82 and around 96 or 97, you are technically a millennial. Now, stereotypically, whether or not you're a millennial remains to be seen. We're going to play a game with you called How Millennial 
are you? And for our listeners, we warn every one of our guests, but uh, we might sound like we're trying to be rude to you. Um, so we're sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. And with that being said, let's get started. So you're first. Are you ready? Are oh, you ready, are though? You ready? Are you ready for this? I, I think I'm, a, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, we'll, That's fair. we'll see. We'll see how many All right, you well, first question. Do you even know how to hashtag adult? <laughs> I see. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have four kids, so I hope so. But yeah, I mean, still, I, I mean, I, mean I, I there are times that I'm like half tempted to like tie one to the roof of my minivan or something. I, my guess is that <laughs> that is not that's not hashtag adulting. I'd assume. Um, yeah, I, oh, I was about to say something. We'd have to apologize for to us about a state. <laughs> I'm glad I, I caught myself. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll change it. Um, do you so this is kind of based on the fact that like people talk about how we just don't know how to do things anymore, but also they took practical stuff out of our education because of budget cuts. So like you don't know how to cook, it's your fault, except we didn't have home economics like everybody else did before us. Stuff like that. Um yeah. but do you ever have to like, you know, like you're trying to do something, you're like, I don't know how to do this, so you Google it, you know, you Google it real quick, get on YouTube, watch a video, you figure out how to trim your uh, how to style your beard things like that yeah absolutely yeah so you're a millennial <laughs> that's fair <laughs> okay that's, so, that's, a, so that's a that's a point that, that's a point <laughs> all right. this is gonna be this is gonna be out of three so right now you're one for one evan uh, all right you've you you've youtubed how to do something adults should know how to do so stereotypically <laughs> you don't know how to adult uh all right question two are you ready sure why do you hate the economy so much why did you ruin it why just in general why do you hate america what <laughs> why do i hate america <laughs> yeah specifically though this is this is probably more geared towards you ruin the economy which is why you hate well america. i mean why? you personally let sears die um other yeah, clothing you've, companies you've let all these businesses um, we, we've go killed out of Hooters, business and I, yep. I, i'm pretty sure that's your fault directly i so. get it yeah, why? Why do you hate the economy, man? You know, yeah. I, you're so correct. I remember back in Pennsylvania. This is my fault, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I, I, back in Pennsylvania, um, I just saw it came across some social media feed that the the mall in my hometown in Pennsylvania is being put up for sh- sheriff sale. It's being auctioned off because the people are thirty three million dollars in debt. What? And I'm like. Yeah, it's my fault because I didn't go yeah. and uh, shop at Sears and JCPenney in the mall, right? It, exactly. So now you understand the context of the question. Why do you hate the economy? And more so, why do you hate America? Yeah, yeah. No, like I, I rage. I rage against capitalism in general, right? <laughs> yes, you could be because you hate America. So uh, Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, and, and that's what America is. It's, it's capitalism. So, right? I mean, is that, yeah. Is that what I'm supposed to be here? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. The stereotype is that if you don't fit into consumeristic norms, if you don't, you know, if you don't, I don't get in major amounts of debt, if you don't, you know, have a million credit cards, if you're not patronizing all these brick and mortar stores all the time, if you, you know, basically if if a millennial, so this is the actual authentic stereotype, like I'll be less snarky. If a millennial says, man, I can't afford a house, then the stereotypical response is, well, you should get a better paying job. Oh, sure. And, yeah. and so as if, as if to say it's your fault, you're not making enough money when the reality is 
it's pretty crappy out there getting a job, even with a college degree. So that's the real that's the real nitty gritty for well, it. The I real guess. question is, if you have one job, why don't you just get a second one? Yeah, exactly. and if you have two, why not get a third? You know? Yeah, then it's you can like afford you can that house. Time with your children or your spouse or your animals or just you know time so you don't go insane. Those things don't matter. Yeah. So that's where the stereotypes rooted. So basically, I Evan, I, I hate to break it to you. No matter what you said, this was going to be counted against you because just you existing <laughs> means that you are the stereotype. So oh, there sorry, you go. I'm, I guess I'm two for two then, then, huh? Yes. You, whether sir, you like so it or far not. are a millennial. We, we stack the deck against our guests uh, unapologetically, even though we apologize in every episode about something. This <laughs> thing, we, we don't really apologize too much for this. So, <laughs> All right. Byron's got, Byron's got your third question. All though. right. Well, let's see if we can get a hat trick out of you. Um, if you had to go without coffee or avocados for the rest of your life, what would you choose and why? Oh, wow. (laughs) That question really stinks. (laughs) You're right. Coffee and avocados do smell terrible. I'm on the record on this. I I don't like either of those things. Byron Um, would not. This would not be points against Byron. Coffee or avocados. Yeah, he doesn't like either one. I kind of rage against them. um, Yeah. Not a fan. I mean, but obviously, your response is that you love them, Evan. I can tell, right? Yeah, I mean, you're asking me to choose between coffee and guacamole. This is bad. Uh huh. Realistically, we're trying to ruin your breakfast. Either you can't have avocado (laughs) on toast or coffee. Yeah, I see that. Um, (laughs) If I really, if you really were going to force my hand, like obviously, I don't want to give up either. But if you're really going to force my hand, I'd give up. I'd give up the avocados. Okay. But there's there's a very specific reason why. Is it because you're a parent? Well, yeah, well, no. Well, yeah, I guess. But there's, th- I learned something here in Florida um, that we did not do in Pennsylvania. But uh, I, I learned from some of my Puerto Rican folk here in Central Florida, and Cuban folk here in Florida about guava paste. And so guava paste, guava paste with uh, with uh, queso blanco is just amazing. So it's this like sweet and like you need, you need the bitter coffee to make that all work. So hmm. um, I'll, I'll give up guacamole to have my guava paste. So Man, that go. sounds, that sounds amazing. It is. It's phenomenal. I'll have to, yeah. Like the next time I see you, I'll have to bring some out or something. Yes, please. That sounds glorious. Yeah. Assuming so, the TSA workers don't take it from me or something. But. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I guess to recap on, you know, part one of how many are you, the stereotypical segment we stacked against the get the stack the deck against you. You're you're a millennial, stereotypically speaking. So sorry, that's just how it is, I guess. You're one of us. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I, we I guess I, what I was guess that? I fit, the, I fit the stereotype for like needing a place to belong. Then too, right? Like, sure, I'm a part of your group now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You're needy in some way, which also makes you a millennial. So <laughs> fantastic. This, <laughs> this is a safe place. Yes, safe spaces. Or space. What's, yeah. Safe spaces. No, but really, <laughs> gotcha. and I say this every time because I really mean it and I think it's really important. It's really easy to label a thing, but people have names. So when we resort to calling a person a millennial, we're basically treating them like a thing. It's far more important to learn a person's name and actually get to know them and not define them by stereotypes, which is why we play this game because it's fun. We're going to play a second section here, though, because... It's probably also important to note that just because 
Byron and I and our guests rail against this machine. It doesn't mean that there isn't significant issues out there playing into the negative perspectives of millennials, like just that they are garbage because they're millennials, because they ruin things. They hate the economy. Like these are all things that have been in headlines. And I'm sure you may have seen them yourself. So this section, the second part is maybe redemption for you, Evan. You can try your best to discern, to weed out what, what is real and what is fake. We're going to give you three chances. We're going to give you three headlines in each chance. Two are fake and one is real. So we'll see how well you, uh, how familiar, I suppose I should say, you are with the millennial stereotypes. Are you ready? I suppose. Okay. Here we go. Headline number one. Walmart targets millennial shoppers by offering pet care. Headline number two, outrage over Kentucky Derby stems from uneducated millennial gamblers. Headline number three, millennials know about auto insurance ad references more than the Constitution. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with the third one. Why? The, Why? Because like the, the, the whole idea um, of like the lack. Well, I mean, you have a couple of them that are about like lack of education. So like between the which is like typical for just complaining about young people and millennials in general. And so I'm going to go. It was between horse racing but if the stereotype of millennials is that we don't have money, then we're not going to bet on horse racing. So I'm going with the third one. <laughs> well, while that might be real, I mean, it's very possible that millennials actually know auto insurance ad references more than the Constitution. The true, actual, authentic headline is the Walmart one. So oh, this is the real headline. Me. Walmart targets millennial shoppers by offering pet care. And what they are specifically doing is very weird. I, maybe it's not. I don't know. I'm going to be I'm going to have to say sorry for hating pets or something. For the record, I have like a billion animals. I love pets. But Walmart is specifically creating a pet pharmacy within their stores. Like they're trying to roll out pet pharmacy. And I guess there's something to it with millennials because of how much we want to, I don't know, love on our pets like their children because we're not ready for children. I see. <laughs> so how do you feel about that um yeah i don't have any pets so um wouldn't apply to you yeah my my boys have been bugging me about getting a dog but i, I don't I, i've been trying to resist that one Dude, well here's um, the deal if you get a dog the youngest might not want a sister anymore so <laughs> that's true how'd that work out for you Josiah? it didn't my uh well i guess that's a lie it it worked for like two years and then my wife still wanted to have children right away. So four kids later, we have two dogs now. So it didn't work well at all, actually. All right. So okay. yeah. 0 for, 0 for 1, Evan. So here's, your, all right. here's your next set of three. Here comes redemption. We'll all see. right. The first one is Manscaped. Millennial men calling for body hair representation on screen. Second one is Joe Biden gets roasted after saying he has no no empathy for millennials. And the third one is poll says most millennials have Mueller report on their to read list. <laughs> wow, man. <laughs> Where do you guys come up with this stuff? All right. Um, 
Well, do you really want to know? We could tell you real quick. We have an answer for that. Uh, so one of our guests, his name is well Matt Slater Moose. He's our producer, basically. He's, he's one of our back. Like, he he helps us out a lot in the background. He he literally. He we just text him. Like yeah. Yeah, we just texted him. It's like, can you give us some fake headlines? And he just blasted out like 30 one day. It was ridiculous. And then the other one. He's got to be one of the most creative people. (laughs) (laughs) The other ones we get from like, Josiah has an alert on his. So like anything about millennials pops up. So that's how we get the real ones. But yeah, no, Moose is a a master. All right. Just because of the absolute outlandishness of it, I got to go with the body hair thing. (laughs) <laughs> hey, well you need to explain why we need your rationale oh, come because... on man I, I gave you my explanation um <laughs> I mean, anytime any way that you could make a millennial seem absolutely ridiculous so um it, it, i mean anything that would would make it sound like our, the cares of of the world that we have are petty so basically um, because it's sensationalizing our generation that's why exactly. you that one. so there you go that's so i'm going with that okay it's incorrect. Um, it's actually the Joe Biden gets roasted after saying he has no empathy for millennials. All right. <laughs> I said that, he said it in an interview, and people, uh, someone tweeted it. It's it's an interview from a, a books. I think he's trying to sell his book, if I recall correctly. Just that. Yeah, um, I think so. And someone found the video and has posted it, and then basically millennials just made fun of him for it. So the quote he said in the video is: "The younger generation now tells me how tough things are." Give me a break. No, no, I have no empathy for it. Give me a break. And so basically, since millennials are pretty tech savvy, they're just roasting him on Twitter now. Oh, his whole argument was that they need to get more involved in politics. Um, And so then now people are saying, we're going to get more involved in politics and we're going to make sure an old man like you who doesn't like us will not be president. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm pretty sure some of these people, the ones I've seen on Twitter... They're probably from people who might have voted for him to begin with. They're not Republican, is my guess, based on what they have to say. (laughs) It probably didn't help his campaign. So yeah, Yeah, he probably hurt himself pretty bad with with our generation. All right, so this this is this is your last chance at true redemption because you're zero for two. But again, we we kind of try to make this game impossible. We've we've had I think the best anyone has done is two for three on this. But um, yeah, we're di- but yeah, so no one's gotten this, three. This three. one's tough. All right, this is the last one. Headline number one: Taking over the limelight. Gen Z kids sick of all the millennial mislabeling. Headline number two: Tired of Gen Z terms. Millennial bring millennials bring back YOLO. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that one's just so great. Millennial headline number three: Millennials are more likely to face to face arrest. Than Gen Xers. Oh wow! It's all about the gender dynamics, or not gender? Sorry, the uh, generational dynamics. Yeah, I want to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go with the third one, uh, and simply because it's counterintuitive again. <laughs> so like, um, the whole like the whole Gen X thing is that they're so they're so angst filled. You know, it's like Kurt Cobain, um, and so I'm. The idea of uh, millennials being more prone to be arrested than Gen Xers seems counterintuitive. So I'm going with that one. Ding, 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 ding. Evan, you got it right. Woo! 
So here's <laughs> here's more about the article for your for your edification. New research suggests that the broken window pol- policing has resulted in more young people getting arrested for trivial offenses, especially young people of color. Um, there's there's a full on study. Basically, they're more likely than members of pre- previous generations to get arrested because of all these things. Um, the study was just released. This is through the Pacific Standard, which I, I don't know. It's some online publication, but it references some research put on by another outlet called the RSF Journal. Um, but basically, there's all this research that shows the arrest ages, uh, you know, and it's most of the time very, very minor offenses. But a lot of it is potentially biased to try to say that, you know, police given to um, profiling and they're assuming younger people are doing the crimes just because that's the age old conundrum. You know, once upon a time, convenience stores would say one teenager at a time. Right. I don't know if you yeah, guys remember that. I do. But yep. uh, that's, that's kind of the, that's the picture that this article and this research paints is that that has continued and that just by being a millennial and then even more so being a millennial of color, you're probably going to be arrested. You're more, more likely to be arrested than someone in generation X or above. So it's not very far fetched. Seems plausible. So let's see one for three, Evan, how do you feel about that? It works for baseball, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you have any thoughts about this whole stereotype thing? Do you do you have any reaction to it? Well, yeah, I mean, I think um, besides the fact that your like producer guy is incredibly creative, um, <laughs> the, the, the the significant problem with that is that it's easy to develop stereotypes about uh, generational labels like that, and um, it really kind of stinks because. You lose, you lose the reality that each person is unique. Um, situations and contexts are unique. So, yeah, it, it just stinks um, in general. It's, it's even worse when churches operate on those stereotypes, which happens all too regularly. Um, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll get to that in a second. Before we do, and because we don't actually want to reduce you to some meaningless stereotype, we actually do want to get to know you. Could you give us and our listeners kind of a brief overview of your background in ministry, maybe some about your education, um, maybe just briefly about your call, why, why you became a pastor? And then we'll get into a little more of the nitty gritty about this whole thing that we call church. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of the big thing, I, I was not raised in the church at all. Um, so I was like 18 years old and an atheist. And ended up coming hmm. to faith after I was outside of high school. Um, and so I received a call to ministry about six months after um, I came to faith. And so it was, uh, it's a little bit different than a lot of folks that I talked to. Um, my call was very, very clear uh, pretty early on. Um, and so I ended up going, I, I finished my bachelor's degree online. I ended up getting my master's, uh, uh, my master's of divinity from uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary uh, three years ago, 2016. And um, so I came to faith actually as the lead guitarist in a rock band, a Christian rock band. <laughs> um, so yeah, crazy story. Um, the, I, the guys asked if I could, would come, come and jam with them. I said, sure, I'll bring my guitar down. And they asked me if I'd be their lead guitarist. And I'm like, 
uh, you know, I don't believe anything that you're singing about. Right. And they're like, yeah, I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That um, sounds good. So, uh, but they prayed for me regularly. Like they were awesome guys. Um, uh, they, they prayed all the time, uh, that I would come to faith. And so, um, about six months after that, uh, it came to faith, but that then led into music ministry in the church, obviously. Um, and, uh, and also into youth ministry up in Pennsylvania and now, uh, but my call definitely is a call to preach, uh, more, almost more than anything. Uh, that's where my heart lies. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah. Well, and part of, part of why I just like to highlight part of why we have guests like you on the show is because a lot of times it feels very isolating for a young pastor, especially if they're a lead pastor, because I I don't know about in Florida, but you know, I can count on one hand, the other millennial lead pastors on my district. Yeah. Like, well, when I first got on this district, I should say, uh, they've actually been making great, uh, great moves in a direction that's very awesome in my opinion where now there's there's quite a few more that have become district called by the district gosh i can't talk uh but there's by our district leadership been this huge initiative to try to get more uh young leadership in and to mentor that leadership so that the torch can be passed but i don't know about you many of our guests have expressed kind of feeling isolated feeling like there's not too many of us out there. Um, so it's just kind of worth remembering that, you know, that there are some young leaders up and coming that even though you might not feel like you're young, I don't know if you've heard, there's a stat pensions and benefits put out the largest age group of pastors in our denomination is the 65 plus age group. Yeah, it's scary. Um, so it's worth, it's worth considering what that means, especially since there's only so many of us to pass the torch down to. Yeah. Yeah. I I will say this, like, as I've thought about it and you're talking about like your districts, I I do recognize that like the Nazarene churches in my area, like, yeah, they're old. Um, (laughs) And I mean, they're nice. I mean, they're really nice guys and ladies that are pastoring. That's not the issue. And I I think they've probably had, they've had some great ministry over the years. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I by far am among like, I lower the, the average age of the room when I walk in pretty significantly and absolutely, you know, and I'm, I'm in my mid thirties. So, I mean, that's, um, it's not like I'm 21 years old and walking in. It's, it's, uh, so it's pretty wild. I, it it does feel, there are times where it does feel isolated. Um, and you're kind of like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm kind of hanging out here. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about ministry over the next 30 years. And yeah. Some of these, some of the guys that I'm talking to or ladies that I'm talking to that are pastoring close by are like, yeah, I'm going to be retiring in three years. Wrapping up their ministry. Yeah. And so it is, it is a different feel certainly. So part of what we try to do is just celebrate that you exist and well, share you. your story. So well, that's, thank you. That's, <laughs> no, yeah. I wish, it's not I like wish. there's a quiz. There's yeah. not a quiz of, Hey, did you answer the questions right? It's more like, Hey, Evan, you exist. Tell us why. Awesome. <laughs> You know, I wish more people would take time celebrating me. That would be phenomenal. <laughs> well, we're going to do that, Evan. We're, we feel like jerks sometimes after the first half of the show, but right. the rest of it, we actually try to make up for it by genuinely being interested in, in your life story. So yeah, hopefully that. that balances it out. So. Well, if it means anything, I've been trying to play back with you too. So it's, it's good. Perfect. Perfect. 
So to, to celebrate that you exist, which, you know, is valid, we should do that. We also probably need to honor the fact that it's not necessarily stereotypical to say, but it's just this statistically proven that our generation is largely absent from the church. And while I haven't seen this empirically proven, the research I see based on every generation's participation in faith communities is that our generation may have been the first generation that a majority left, which is something worth noting. So as that's, as that's kind of bouncing around in your brain as, as we're processing this, what we like to do with all of our guests is to kind of define what it is they're leaving. So for you, Evan, in your own words, this is, we, ask, uh, we ask every guest this, but in your own words, how would you define this thing that they're leaving? How would you define the church? Yeah, I really love this question as I have been thought, thinking about it. Um, and primarily because I've been processing that question for my congregation. And uh, I recognize kind of two things. There's this thing that we call church that's really an organization. And, sure. um, and then there's this other thing that is called church that I think people are trying to reclaim uh, that is this kind of like organic togetherness of people that are named by Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think the first piece, I, I think that the generation, uh, you know, our generation is leaving church primarily because those two terms have gotten intertwined. Um, and um, so like all of the organizational gunk that happens um like, let's be, you know, I've been pastoring now for nine years and man, that I get hurt by the church, you know, you, you know, I've been there where, where the church has hurt me and it's been the organizational garbage in the church that has hurt me or hurt my family. Well, in that regard, it's very tempting to just like say, adios, I'm out of here, you know, I'm done. Um, but, um, so like, I think that that's a big deal. Like I, I actually was reminded uh, in thinking about this question uh, about a quote from Leslie Newbigin. Um, he says, uh, we have corrupted the word church by constantly using it in a non-missionary sense. Hmm. And um, I really, I, I think he really communicates some things that are important to me there about when I try to define church correctly for people. Um uh, and so that like putting it in my own words about what that actually means, um, I think New, Begin- New Begin's trying to grab hold of this idea that, that there's this, there is a ascent component um, to what it actually means to be church. And unfortunately our churches like fail as organizations to do that well. Um, another way that I often think about it and that is very near and dear to my heart is actually kind of the, the colony inside of the empire type idea um, that Stanley Hauerbos and William Willimon uh, kind of espouse. Um, but that the idea that the, the church is meant to be a colony of the kingdom of God here on earth. And so like Roman, Roman, the Roman empire, when they would set up a, a colony town or a colony city, like Philippi in the scripture is a, is a colony t- city. Um, they would like send Roman citizens to go live in those places after they conquered them. So that way they could teach all of the citizens in the, all of the people in that town, how to live like a Roman. 
And so, um, like I think of the church that way is that Jesus has conquered. Um, and now we're sent as, as citizens of the kingdom, uh, to go show people what it means to live inside of the kingdom of God. Um, and so that's kind of the way that I try to process my like thoughts about what is church. I just think that we do a really good job of corrupting the word church by like thinking of, you know, the manual of the church of the Nazarene or, um, <laughs> or the building. The, or... Yeah. I mean, the building's the other thing that we think about, or we think of, we think about all of the, the structures that humans build to try to make an organization run rather, yeah. rather than what Jesus is actually trying to do with this group of people that he's called out um, in, in unique ways. So, um, okay. so that to me, that's what church is. If you're asking me the question. Well, we did. Um, but yeah, yeah. that was, that was good. <laughs> so then, okay. So if you talked about, you also led into like how it can be corrupted and, and ruined essentially. So then we want to know then why are you still a part of it? Since we already said that, you know, our generation is, we want nothing to do with the church. And you had told us at 18, you were an atheist. So that's kind of interesting. So, if that's if you see that corruption and all that's going on, why are you there? Like, what what are you doing? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, when I was uh, when I was a teenager, uh, as mentioned, yeah, I was an atheist. Uh, I actually had done a lot of searching. Um, my mom, my mom had breast cancer and died from breast cancer when I was sixteen. And so uh, that whole time that, I, that my mom was sick and directly afterwards, I did a lot of like, what is, what in the world's going on? It, just being faced, pressed with questions of mortality when you're 14 years old is uh, heavy lifting for a 14 year old. Um, Absolutely. Man. You know, I was not all that, con all that concerned about like video games and things like that. Um, I was much more concerned about other things, but um so I ended up coming to a point where I like, I hated the church and um, I really hated pastors. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was really um, yeah, kind of ironic <laughs> that this is where God put me. Um, yeah, a little bit. But the reason why I hated the church and I hated pastors uh, was not because of the, the necessarily the, the corruption of the church. Um, Cause I really didn't know that I, like, I didn't know what the church was supposed to be. Um, but what I saw in the church was another institution that was simply propping up uh, Americanism. Um, and I know we kind of poked mm. fun that, like, I hate America um, or millennials hate America <laughs> earlier. But, um, like, by the, time, by the time I was, like, 15, 16 years old, um, uh, I really did have uh, – I, I strongly distrusted the American government um, – well, governments, period, I should say, not just the American government, but it just happened that I happened to be American citizen. So, um, and so that's where I was. And so uh, I went to church. My girlfriend's father uh, made me go to church with them. It's the only time I went to like an actual church service outside of funerals um, because, uh, you know, my, my dad was an atheist. My mom was into like Native American animism stuff. And, um, mm. but my girlfriend, who I was very interested in, in getting into a lot of trouble with uh, her dad made me go to church with them once. And it was this like small Baptist church out in the middle of nowhere here in central Florida. And um, like, I remember walking in there and being appalled at the fact that they made me recite the, the pledge of allegiance inside of 
the church. I was like, man, uh-huh. all these people are interested in is making me a good, docile American citizen. Um, and what <laughs> and what I saw what I saw was a group of people that really didn't have anything else to offer than what uh, American education systems offered. Um, you know, I, I said the you know, I was forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning before classes started. And now I'm having to say it in front of it, you know, as a part of a church service, they're doing the same function um, of making me a good American. And um, that's crazy. And so I hated that, you know, like I I hate, I I had such a distrustful attitude towards the American government that that was the way I processed it. And then um, I heard a really bad sermon that morning too, um, which was bad. Um, And I knew it was bad even then. And I wasn't even a Christian yet where uh, the pastor was trying to tell me that, um, you know, Mary got pregnant, but she couldn't take care of herself. Or, you know, his, his point was that teenagers couldn't take care of themselves. It was one of, one of his <laughs> points. And I'm like, I knew enough about the Bible myself because I'd read it. But I'm like, you know, Mary was like 14 years old when she got pregnant with Jesus. And no one said to her that she was like a teenager and couldn't take care of herself. I'm like, so it was just horrible. It was a horrible experience. But um, so I came to faith and uh, I started to read the Gospels in the book of Acts in particular, those two texts, the Gospels and, and Acts. Uh, and what I saw was in Jesus was was something entirely radical um, from the perspective of the fact that he rejected political power. Um, the text in John 6, where the 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 crowds of people are are trying to take him and make him king and he like runs away from it like yeah it's huge to me like i'm like look like jesus had no intention of trying to like win over people that way um but then in the no and he rode on a donkey which i mean i think sometimes we gloss over how huge a statement that was because the alternative for for the the empire for the emperor was a battle steed with an entourage that's armed to the teeth with all the pomp and circumstance to, to show, you know, what a big deal this person was, but Jesus rode on a donkey. And if you've ever seen a donkey or if you've ever heard a donkey, <laughs> you, you know what a distinction that is from a battle steed. Right? Yeah. It's totally, totally counter countercultural. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the reason why Shrek works, right? <laughs> <laughs> That is so good. Missed opportunity, man. Next Palm Sunday, I'm going to use some Shrek illustrations. That's brilliant. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, man. That's where it is. Um, Dad life. That was brilliant. Good one. That's right. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, that's the reason why I, like, I'm on board with this thing called church is that I see, um, I see in the book of Acts a group of people that have been affected by the fact that Jesus um, looked the powers of the world in the face and told it the truth and, and came out victorious in it. And the church wouldn't bow to the, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish allegiance in, in the Jewish leadership, nor did they acquiesce to Rome's call for allegiance. And I looked at it and I went, man, Jesus is like a greater revolutionary than Che Guevara or, you know, <laughs> Lenin or, you know, you know, any of those guys, you know, like is pretty legit. Yeah. I mean, and it, and it's not this, like, it's not charged in the way that uh, Jesus needed to lead a revolution by, by gunpoint. 
Um, and I'm like, it's, it just completely spoke to me. And it's, it's when, when I'm like with it, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is the way that I'm meant to live. And this is the way that God's people are meant to live is this place Mm -hmm. where, um, all of those things don't really matter. Uh, and that this allegiance to the kingdom, um, is really what, what it's about. And so, um, that's what, that's what, that's the reason why I love the church is that, is that I believe that the church is able to be that group of people that's able to actually live out, um, live out the kingdom of heaven on earth as Jesus taught us to pray and, um, you know, gave us teaching about what that looks like and then showed us what it looks like and actually living it out. And that, I think that generally speaking, the early church got it right. Um, Hmm. I'm not saying they got it all right, but you know, they got it, they got a lot right. And, um, I long for that. So I long to be a part of a community like that. So is that to, to build onto that? Is that your, the thing you love most about the church is that kind of countercultural alternative lifestyle, uh, founded in this dude named Jesus's teaching, or is there something more to it that is there like a, a spe- specific thing that you just love about the church? Um, yeah, I, I think that that is probably like my biggest love of the church is that I see this, I see this completely countercultural uh, way of life. Um, I'm going to date myself a little bit by referencing, <laughs> uh, by referencing a really old Switchfoot tune, but um, uh new way to be human uh like that kind of that lyric from john foreman is really appropriate and so uh, is that from legend of chin is that their first it's album? actually it's there actually is an album called uh, new way to be human and it's the title track from that album it's actually worth listening to but it's from like 1990 well uh, no i have i have every switchfoot album so it's either their first or second, second album. album yeah i think it's from it's okay. like from like 1999 or 2000 so it's it's like old. Okay. But, um, that's, but that, that song is, is, is like spot on with what I love about it is that it's this new, it's this group of people that say the way that we are human is by saying, I love you enough to embrace you the way you are, but I love you enough to not leave you where you are either. And, um, Hmm. I see that that's, that's the way that the love of God is expressed. Um, is God looks at us and says, I love you enough that I want you to come to me just the way you are, but I also love you enough that I'm not going to leave you the way you are either. And so, um, which I also like, I, I, it's part of the reason why I love the church of the Nazarene and Mm. kind of like the holiness concept. Like I chose the church of the Nazarene. I wasn't born into it. And part of it was because of the idea that I think that the holiness concept that we can be transformed by the love and grace of Jesus speaks into that it speaks into that idea that god loves me so much that he will embrace me as his child right now but he loves me so much that he says you know what you can do better (laughs) and um and i'm gonna empower you to do better and so um yeah so that's that's why i love the church (laughs) i dig it Uh, I'm, i'm gonna have to look up those lyrics now i'm actually trying to look it up right now but Byron's got a question for you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Go for it. So that's what you love about the church, but what do you think desperately needs fixing? Now we've had people tell us that's a really hard question because there's a lot of things. And of course, (laughs) since the church is full of broken people, it's not a perfect organization, but um, what's something that you think in particular, one main thing that we just need to really take care of and 
and use to move on. Yeah. Better. Um, I'm going to speak, I can speak specifically for the context that I'm familiar with. Um, and I'm acutely aware of problems of the church in the United States and Canada as like in the USA, Canada region in the church of the Nazarene. Um, so I want to speak, I, I'll speak to that in that. I think the, the biggest thing that I personally see in the churches that I'm familiar with in the churches that I've served in, um, I think the biggest thing to me that needs fixing is the remembrance that we are a missional. You cannot use the term church and not have a missional component. Um, we are mission. That Newbegin, Newbegin uh, quote that I, I referenced earlier, that we've corrupted the word church um, by using it in non-missional ways. Um, but that also, I think that there's a couple of things that that, that leans into. Um, when I talk about missional ways, I'm not like I'm surrounded by Southern Baptists here. And so, um, and I, I, I love my Baptist brothers and sisters. I just disagree with particular pieces of their, their doctrines of salvation. And um, I really think that the church hurts itself by stressing this idea of like, we got to get people to heaven. We got to get people to heaven. Um, when Jesus taught us to pray that heaven would come to earth, uh, mm. And that revel, even even Revelation, which is like the text that everybody goes to to try to like, yay, we're going to go to heaven someday. But Revelation twenty one and twenty two talks about the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that there on <clears throat> earth is where the Lamb will be, the light of the city. And so, um, so when I talk like missional, like the church being used in missional ways, um, in that it's broken there is that I think that we have this idea of mission as like how many time, how many people can I get to pray the sinner's prayer at an altar um, without recognizing that they've prayed that prayer and nothing about their life is actually going to change unless people actually walk beside them and teach them about what it means to walk in the ways of Jesus. And um, uh, we homeschool my kids so this is going to be kind of a side story, but as part of their homeschooling curriculum, they're learning Latin. And, um, my son, my oldest son, the nine-year-old, um, I was, I was preaching a couple weeks ago on, on, uh, the, the term disciple. And we got home from church and he looked at me and said, Hey dad, you know, that the Latin, the Latin word discipuli, right? And I'm like, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> and, um, he goes, discipuli means student. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. And he goes, so my guess is, is that when Jesus told us to go and make disciples, is, it, is he wanted us to go and make students? And I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm like, why did it take a nine-year-old to teach me that? <laughs> but, um, uh, but I think that that, that kind of like kick, that's, that's the kicker of it. I think that we're really bad at actually making students of the way of Jesus um, and that we just, we're bad there. And um, to kind of follow that up, like, I think, I think that there's reasons why. I think that, that we were pressed into various metrics that we as pastors have to provide. Um, so like, you bump into the pastor down the street and the pastor asks you, hey, how's the church? 
and what the person's really asking you is how are you, how's your attendance and how's your yeah how many are there on a Sunday you know, morning and, right like that's what they're really asking and, yeah and so um and not that those numbers are bad or evil but that because of that there's a lot of pressure to say okay how can I jam more people into my service on Sunday morning um, and so we look for ways to try to cater um, or to try to to drum up advertising and and wow shock events to get people in into the building and or onto the even just onto the grounds of the church and to say oh look we had 200 people from our community here or um or whatever and um we haven't really given thought to the fact that jesus has taught us to teach them jesus has commanded us to teach them how to walk in the way of christ and um which means self-giving love it means all of those things and so um I think that that's a big problem. I think um, the other significant issue is that we generally speaking get very uncomfortable when we have to actually deal with another person's mess. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, well, you're supposed to have your mess sorted before you come to church, that's right? right? I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, and so, like, I think, I, I think, I think that that's a, an issue that I see in the church is that we don't, we don't want to deal with another person's mess. And so when I, if I have to teach somebody the, how to live the way that Jesus taught us to live, that means I have to get up close and personal with their mess. And um, I might actually even get hurt by their mess. And um, it's going to require time. It's going to require energy. It's going to require like turning off game of thrones and paying attention to somebody, you know, like, <laughs> um, way to make it culturally relevant. Thank there. you. Legit. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so, so when you're saying missional, I, I mean, I speak Christianese, so I get yeah. it, you know, but I want to, I want to get more to the, the root of what you're talking about because there is the great commission, right. In the gospels, the, sure. the stuff that, that Jesus says at the end, and, and he says that. He says, go and make disciples, teaching them uh, what I taught you, make, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's, that's, a, that's a command that Jesus gave his followers. Um, but how that looks, how, how people strategize living that out, how I, 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 their approach to that vastly differs. So when you say missional, like, you know, someone might be conjuring in their mind, uh, well, I don't want to hear the bullhorn preachers outside yeah. of the big gathering arenas saying I'm going to hell because I'm an idolatrous worshiper of fill in the blank. You know, for me up here, it's if you go watch the Seahawks or the Mariners, someone's on the street corner preaching hellfire and brimstone because you're an idolater. Yeah, right? I went, to, so I went it, to go see Andy Minio a couple of weeks ago. And if you know who Andy Minio is, do you know Andy Minio? I do. Yeah, yeah. I totally do, but I'm spacing on what he does because i've heard that name a bunch he's a rapper i can't decide if i was gonna say i can't decide if he's like a comedian or music tell where i've heard yeah, it. he's a rapper from new york um and I, I appreciate him um but i went to go he was he was not too far from me like 40 minutes at like a mega church and uh like outside the mega church was exactly what you're just describing um you know about people protesting an any minio concert and i'm like man really um, but yeah, to answer your question, because you're asking about like, what do I mean by being missional? And yeah. um, 
Because I would assume this is the near and dear thing to your heart, right? Like you want the church to be better at it. So yeah. what does that look like day in and day yeah, out? Yeah, absolutely. I think it looks like this is what it means to me. Is that um, it means that there are people that actually are investing in the lives of people in their communities. Um, not just in the essence of like I'm handing them food, like in a food pantry, but I actually don't know their name. But you're actually like joining life with them and um with the and this gets kind of fuzzy so uh, and it might look like what churches do but they don't do it well um so like church i I rail on the term fellowship right like people take the term church like church fellowship and like oh we're talking about a potluck and i'm like man that's like missing the mark of what biblical fellowship is about um and so I'm not just talking about like doing life together, which is like the tag phrase that we place on that, but I'm talking about like <laughs> actually loving and investing in the person that lives across the street from you. Um, kind of the, the phrase that keeps running across my mind is that um, I want to change the world. I believe Jesus came to change the world, but that f- changing the world is about changing one life. And so if I, if I invest in that kid across the street, that's wandering around and that I, I invest in that kid and I demonstrate to that one child at 12 years old or 13 years old, and I have them in my neighborhood, I invest in that child that the world has changed. It might be small, but that's where Jesus was, is that Jesus was in those small those small relationships is, is what I think of them mm-hmm. as where. So investing, meaning like you're actually spending time, you're getting to know them, exactly. you're listening like, to their life story, yeah, like playing basketball with them. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're there in, in, it's not just a matter of like, Oh yeah, I get to have a party with this person, which is kind of like the way that church, the church thinks of like fellowship. Like we get together to party and you don't ever really like, rub life on life to the point where people are being transformed by one another and that the spirit of God in someone else is challenging me to live differently. Um, but rather that I'm, I'm being intentional with the time to be able to, to do this. Let me give an example um, of what I'm talking about. So this just happened last week. So last Thursday, um, my, you know, my oldest kid is a drummer. And he's getting his drum lessons. He gets them done online. And uh, it's in the evening, Thursday evening. And my other three boys are just bouncing off the wall. And so they're stuck inside. My wife's making dinner. And I said, hey, I'm going to take the three boys outside and just let them run and play for a while. So my community has like a common area in it. And so I took two soccer balls and a Frisbee. And I took my three sons up there uh, and started to play. And before I knew it, I had another like seven or eight kids out in the, in, in the common area, with me, you know, <laughs> and I knew a couple of them, some of them I'd never met before. Um, but, uh, so this one kid, um, that I did know he has my Frisbee, right. And he starts to try to throw it up into the tree that's there. There's, you know, we have like an Oak tree there in the, the common area. He's trying to, he's throwing the Frisbee. He's trying to get the Frisbee stuck up in the tree. And so I look at him and say, hey, man, stop throwing my Frisbee up in the tree. He goes, oh, I'm trying to get it stuck up there. And I'm like, why? 
And he says, oh, I, I wanted to get it stuck up in the tree. I said, please don't do that. And so I start to play with a couple of the other kids again. And I turn around. He's throwing the Frisbee up in the tree again. <laughs> so I look at him. I'm like, dude, stop throwing my Frisbee up in the tree. He goes, oh, it's not going to get stuck up there anyway. I said, I looked at him. I said, and I don't know where this came from, but I'm like, hey, God gave me that Frisbee. And he looked at me like I was from Mars. Like, <laughs> he, like he, you, I just bur- like blew his world up by saying that God gave me the Frisbee. And he's like, who paid for that Frisbee? I said, I did. He said, God didn't give you that Frisbee. And I'm like, yes, he did. God gave me the Frisbee. He said, you paid for it. I said, yeah, but God gave me the ability to have money and to buy a Frisbee so I could play with people like you and with my sons and stuff. And he's, he just looked at me like, like I was from outer space. But the, the, the reality was, was that that moment out in the middle of a common area, when quite frankly, I wanted to be back inside by that point. I was planning on being outside for like 10 minutes and it was like 30 minutes. And I'm like, I want to go eat dinner. And, um, and now you're being a dad to all the neighborhood kids on top. Exactly. Of but like that moment right there um, provided opportunity for me to, to be missional to that kid. That didn't mean I was trying to get that kid to make a proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ. Being missional to that kid was helping him to see that there's a different way to live in the world other than you own your own property. It was God gave me the ability to own this, so I want to take care of it. And so just that little bit of movement where, where I was able to skew his world a little bit to say, what just happened? Um, and that, that the next time that I see him, which I'm hoping to see him tomorrow, um, and maybe not, hopefully he's not going to try to throw my Frisbee up in the tree again, but that like, <laughs> uh, but that maybe it'll be something else that I'll be able to go look at him and say, actually, God did this for me. And that it's going to, that, that it's not about trying to get a confession out of somebody, but trying to show them that life is different because of the resurrection of Jesus. And um, because there's a whole new creation that is here, there's a whole new way of living. Um, I come back to the, this last point on this idea of missional living Um, and the way that it's meant to be an all encompassing, it's meant to be a holistic thing of our lives. Um, I guess the buzzword, the millennial buzzword would be, it's meant to be authentic. Am I allowed to say that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can say, well, you're a millennial, man. We proved it with the stereotype. All right. Man. So I'm allowed to use the stereotypical <laughs> millennial word of authenticity. Do it. Um, Do it. Get so it. So like it, it's not to kind of encompass this idea. Um, Stanley Hauerbos, I, I love that guy. Like his writing's phen- phenomenal. Um, but he had this quote that has shaken me um, and I've, I've really been chewing on it. Um, but he said he, he attempts to live his life in such a way that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, his life doesn't make sense. Mm. And um, like, I just think about that. Like how much do I honestly believe from the depth of my being that God really did bring about the new creation in the resurrection of Christ. And if that's the case, every moment of my life, every conversation, every relationship that I have gives me opportunity to live that new creation in front of somebody in that, um, in that, that living that new creation might just be simply saying, God gave me that Frisbee, or it might be saying, (laughs) Hey, do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? And are you ready to repent and move out of this 
cycle of sin in your life. Like we can use that traditional church language, but that um, uh, it really is about this, this idea that there, there is this new creation that we're called to live into because Jesus Christ really has risen from the dead. And um, that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I want my church to live into. Um, and I believe- well, because there's a temptation for, for the other, I would say. Uh, and and I'm, I'm reading between the lines as a fellow pastor. I think there's far too often the temptation to, to, to do the opposite. Kind of like what we're talking about with Jesus. Jesus was tempted by his own followers. Well, may, maybe tempted. The, the people that were there encouraging Jesus to, to do what Rome would have done in that moment yeah. is a heavy temptation, right? Absolutely. And I think today... I think today the church, and, and I think we said it already, uh, there's like a shift, a movement that's not, not as old as Christianity, but it's, it's a, I guess, a form, a version of Christianity called American evangelicalism. And I think that's the temptation to use the, the human constructs of the day, the political influence, the, the, the power and might of the, the Rome of the day to kind of almost force, force a Christian... Uh, way of life on those that are like uh what and then it just a, is it's a it's a total misrepresentation of it so you know i guess the classic age-old thing i got in a lot of trouble for preaching this but i get <laughs> myself into trouble for any number of things so it's fine i basically said stop complaining that abortion is legal and start loving on teenage girls that have been neg- like abandoned by their family for getting pregnant Right. Like yeah. that maybe maybe they just need some love. Maybe they need to be invested. Stop complaining that we're doomed as a country because we took God out of schools and we're no longer allowed to pray and realize that if you go and talk to your your school administrator, um, they might actually be all about you coming to their schools to love on their kids. I was I was invited by my kids principal to go and start a Bible study, to come and pray, to just be present. Like you can, you can complain that the courthouse took the 10 commandments down, but what does the Bible actually say about that stuff? It's like if it's written on your hearts, which is just a way of saying, if you're living it out, if you're living into that new creation, it doesn't matter how many stone things they take down. Like it doesn't matter. Right. It's something that is lived out. And so the temptation of that sort of evangelical American movement is that we need to match might with might. And we would rather be tempted to live into the, the, the human way, the, the worldly way to then evoke the change we want to, to legislate Christianity instead of practice it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think kind of very much my heart is what you just communicated. Um, in Pennsylvania, this was one that I used to rail against and it drove me bananas. But um, in central Pennsylvania, if you go from Harrisburg, the state capital, uh, to, to Williamsport, which is about 100 miles north, um, straight up U.S. 11 and 15, in that stretch of road, there's probably about a dozen adult bookstores. Um, huh. And so being a very conservative um, – you know, uh, traditional Christian area of central Pennsylvania, those adult bookstores became like hot topic stuff, you know, in that it was oftentimes the complaint of the church to say, like, we need to legislate this out. Like we need to vote for people into our local government offices um, 
that will get rid of these businesses. And I'm like, do you even know the people who work there? Like, <laughs> have you ever talked to them? And um, in that, that was, it's a legitimate question in that the, 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 the reality of it is how in the world is that area able to sustain that many adult bookstores is, Seriously, you know, like <laughs> that's the real question is that there's, there's obviously enough people that are participating in engaging in economic practices that are using their money to, to purchase that stuff, that those places are staying in business. So like, what's the bigger problem? The fact that there's an adult bookstore on the corner or the fact that there's a pile of men and women that are, are potentially enslaved to pornographic material. And, um, yeah. and so like, you're right. Like we're, we're so caught up in trying to like legislate morality in that it never works. It, you can't, you can't legislate mm-hmm. the heart. Yeah. That's where it is. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so give us some final thoughts as we wrap this up. If you can give it, give it a one liner, if you can give it your benediction, like you would at the end of a sermon, if you can give it, it the classic preacher line is if you don't take anything away, but this one thing, you know, give us that hot take about what it means for the church to be authentically missional once again, to, to live into its mission. What is that thing that, you know, a Byron or a Josiah or a, a lay person, a pastor, what, what is your take on how we can tomorrow when we're going about our day to day, actually have missional lenses on our, on our, you know, on our eyes or harder, whatever you want to say, like, what's the, what's the take home? Sure. Sure. I would say we need, to, um, yeah, let, uh, yeah, let me get, I'll get into preacher mode for you, Josiah. All right. Can I do that? <laughs> um, sure. Um, yeah. If there's one thing you're going to take away and take home with you today. It would be to open your eyes to your local community, um, open your eyes and allow your eyes to see the world the way that Jesus sees it. Um, and not just in the, the essence of like, oh, my neighbor is a pain in the neck, but rather my neighbor is a person who, who God created and God loves. Um, just as much as he loves exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> and that um, I would also say that the other piece of that is that recognize that following Jesus actually needs to cost you something and that, um, and usually it's going to be the things that you don't want to pay. And so if it's easy for you to write a check and place it in the offering plate for someone else to go be a missionary, probably the thing that Jesus is asking you to give up is your own time and energy and space. Um, if it's easy, if it's easy for you to give up your own time, then probably what Jesus is going to ask of you is to start thinking about other areas of sacrifice, like maybe financially that are uncomfortable for you. Um, yeah. Generally speaking, I think that our, in the United States, our biggest discomfort is having to actually like give up our own time and pleasure and comfort. Um, but that that's, that's Jesus. Jesus got uncomfortable so that he could take the mess of my life and change it and bring me into a new world. Um, and so if I'm going to be a part of his body, if I'm going to be in the incarnation of Christ now, I'm going to be Jesus in flesh now, I have to do that. So um, mm-hmm. not that I'm doing it perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but well that's... it's a it's a daily it's a daily submission to that way of living that countercultural ethic of love so yeah 
Well, I, hey, man, you didn't go into like normal preacher mode. Uh, it could you could have gone for a well, couple hours? Me, I, suppose, have a, but... I have a clarifying, uh, clarifying question. Sure. And this is kind of snarky. Um, <clears throat> so it sounds like to me that basically everything you've been talking about this whole time is we as creations of of God and new creations in Christ should treat people with respect and take care of them just because they're people. <laughs> that makes sense. That, I mean, I love how that's so what a what a novel idea. Like I just love that that's counterculture though. Like that that doesn't make sense to the way we view things. And we we joked about capitalism earlier, but like in just human terms, loving your neighbor as yourself does not make sense because I should be getting you know like I should be looking out for myself first. And yeah. if they have something better, then I should want that and and pursue it either by legal or illegal means. Like. I should care about me first and that's it. I mean, like, yeah, absolutely. And it's just so weird that like people, well, you said yourself, like when you were, you weren't a Christian, but you were listening to sermons because of your, you know, your, your girlfriend's dad made you go to church (laughs) and you were just saying, huh? Like, I'm not a Christian, but I'm pretty sure these people are getting it wrong. And that's how (laughs) infected our culture is with capitalism and just selfishness of the American culture. This is elsewhere too, but Americans suffer from this very deeply. Um, and it's just funny that pastors can keep telling people, hey, you should love people like Christ loved them. And we get flack for that. Like people get angry yeah. about that, but that those simple statements. Yeah. And it just, I, it just blows my mind that we can't wrap our heads around that simple part of the Gospels. Yeah, that's I agree. Well, what Jesus, it is. Jesus said it was the greatest thing, dude. Love God, love love your neighbor as yourself and it's pretty pretty well, simple but, but pretty thing, though, so even in that story there's a follow-up question by the person who talked to him about that and it was who's, well, my, neighbor? who's my neighbor because yeah. if it's this person i like already then yes i love that guy cool I love my family but i, I don't want spouse, it to be that guy over there but i don't want yeah, it to be that exactly. guy i don't like so even we have this it's not just like i said it's not just american culture jesus was confronting it with in his day of people saying, well, I don't want to like Samaritans. I don't want to like yeah, Romans. Are no. you kidding me? They're the worst. So There's bad blood there. So, yeah, it's just like the gospel seems so simple in when you read it. It is hard to live out, especially because we're just so messed up and terrible. Humans are the worst. <laughs> yeah. But, but, like, it's just like we keep, like, banging our heads against the wall as pastors saying, hey, maybe you should love people. Oh, those those immigrants at the southern border. Oh. Maybe we should take care of them. They're refugees, but they don't. We're law. Whatever. It's just yeah. like, oh, come on. Like, just love people. We're missing the point. So, um, completely with you, and I, I need to acknowledge how the my own blind spots in that. So well, yeah, um, and how like, it, it, like I, I the parts that I can see clearly, I'm like I can rail against really easily, and then suddenly I get like completely blindsided by the fact that like I did something really stupid and um <laughs> and, and, uh, so I had a, a, a pastor friend of mine up in Pennsylvania um uh he I remember I asked him once I was talking to him about materialism in the church in the United States and um I said how you know he was him and I were talking and he's pastoring a church outside of Philly and um he said I asked him I said how in the world do you talk to your church about not being materialistic? And he goes, I don't know how you do that. He said, you know, a fish is the only one that can't tell you what it's like to be wet. 
And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what, what in the world is that supposed to mean, Mike? And it, it, it dawned on me like, oh, he's trying to communicate. Like he himself is in the midst of this materialistic culture. And so that it's very difficult for him to speak out of that. And, um, and I don't think that we stop trying just because we're ha- we happen to be in the fishbowl with them. Um, yeah. That we still got to tell the other fish in the bowl that we're, we're soaking wet. Um, but that that's a beautiful analogy. Though. So I've yeah, that was, that was pretty great. Yeah. That was Mike Schutz. Um, I, for, I think he's at Avon park in Pennsylvania. I forget the, I think that's what it's called, That's great. but he was, he was, uh, well, he was up at ENC for a while. Um, and he landed on the Philly district when I was there. So Mike's a great guy. So I'll give a shout out, a shout out to Mike Schutz if he's listening. <laughs> well, shout out to you as well, Evan. We want to celebrate that you exist and that you decided to be on this podcast with us. So thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for playing our absolutely ridiculous game that hopefully puts this point home that, hey, if we reduce each other to some sort of stereotypical label, then we're probably dishonoring what the gospel calls us to do, which is to love each other and actually get to know one another in a meaningful way. But but all I'd say, thanks, Adam. My pleasure. Thanks for being on Thank the show. Thank you for being here, man. It was great. I really thanks. enjoyed it. Thanks, Byron. Appreciate it a lot. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you like this podcast for whatever reason, feel free to subscribe. It's in all the places where all the things are. Byron would really appreciate constructive critiques and reviews and not just you suck. No one's actually said that, by the way. That's just me and Byron being We just assume Byron. they're going to honestly... say it, but if you do, that's fine. <laughs> just tell me why I have suck. Have a reason. Like, say, Byron's have a the reason worst why. Because, you know, continue that. Yeah, I'm sure, there's, I'm sure there's a host of reasons you could fill in there, but you just have a constructive critique there for us. But honestly, if you rate it, review it, it, it just makes it that much more discoverable by others if you think it merits that. But in general, if you want to hear more about what us millennials are doing, the faith-based work that we are attempting to live out w- within culture, if you want to hear about more stories like Evan, then please stay tuned and join us next time on the Millennial Pastor Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josiah. And co-host, Byron. Until next time.